Amen, amen. Good morning, City Light. Good morning, good morning. Hey, my name is Glenn. I serve as one of the pastors here. Want to give a warm welcome to you if you are new with us. Um, elephant in the room, midterms are in a couple days. Uh, so this morning, we're going to talk about God's heart for government and politics. I didn't want to do anything that was, you know, finessed or eloquent to kind of come out and like, you know, slowly let the cat out of the bag. That's where we're going to be. So brace yourselves. Let me put you at ease. Um, this morning is a unique Sunday for our pulpit. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn to Romans chapter 13, Romans chapter 13. Uh, by, by way of introduction, there are three people in this gym today. Uh, one category of people is those who are first-time visitors. I want you to know our normal mode of operation as a church is that we would preach through books of the Bible. We start in chapter one, we go till we're done. Um, we have done that in our two years as a church through the gospel of John and through the book of Hebrews and the book of Ephesians. And from time to time, uh, we will teach on subjects more topical in nature, which is where we find ourselves this semester. We've been in a sermon series here at City Light Bennington called The Church After God's Own Heart. And in this series, we've brought to you from Scripture a burden that we would be a church that desires what God desires. I wonder if you have that same hunger that we do, a church that sees what God sees, uh, a church that flees from what God hates, a church that loves what God loves. In fact, I just want to survey how God's word has shaped us over the last couple months, because I get it, government, politics, uh, potentially divisive, controversial, you're already squirming, I'm not. Um, so here's the thing, this is one Sunday, and over the last several Sundays, here's some of the things that God has taught us as a church. He said, disciples of Jesus are receptive to God's word. Disciples of Jesus, who make up a church after God's own heart, are people who trust God, who are forgiving, who pursue holiness, who love the lost, who are thankful, who are humble and confess sin, who hear God's voice, who know how to rest in God, who are obedient to God's word, who are generous and who are compassionate. In fact, if you did not hear last Sunday's sermon from Cliff Tulsi. We want you to go online and watch that. So today uh, is very unique. Goodness, next week we're going to celebrate, we're going to come back here next week and celebrate God's heart for the nations. And we're going to have uh, an opportunity to learn about partnerships for our church to help bring the gospel uh, to the globe and even to minister to hundreds of international students right here in our city. So we're so glad you're here. If you're new with us, um, you picked a unique Sunday, but I, I pray, and, and I'm confident this will be encouraging to you. It will be fruitful for you, and I, I hope it to be thought-provoking. Some of you, you think that the pulpit and politics just shouldn't mix. Keep one over here, keep the other over here, don't ever mix them, and as best I can, I want to put you at ease. This, this morning, is not a political campaign. This is not a political rally. We're not telling you who to vote for. It's I think, unlawful for us to do that anyways. Allow me to reason with you as to why we would address a controversial issue. First, there is so much noise and messaging in our culture from every angle, especially toward our kids. I would hope that an environment where the word of God and the person and work of Jesus is held in high esteem would be a place where your children would desire to learn and grow, to be informed and equipped. I believe that your pastors, Roy and myself, who'll be up here after me, should be a source of godly wisdom and insight, and we don't take that lightly. Second, we've been clouded in our judgment. Unfortunately, we live in a time when moral and ethical issues that are very close to the heart of God have been politicized. Church, I just want to say out loud, there is no diversity of truth. There is no diversity of truth. Truth is truth. 
and there is uh, messaging and advertising all over the place, especially during an election cycle. I'm sure you're annoyed with it just as much as I am, that wants to not talk about those issues close to the heart of God, but wants instead to demonstrate to you that every politician that you would vote for, they just grill hamburgers in their backyard. They just change their baby's diapers. They're just normal people. Their parents worked in the coal mine. They came from nothing. You know, they, it, don't worry about me. Just vote for me, right? So this is both sides. Uh, everybody's guilty of this. And, and oftentimes those kinds of ads are for people who, I'm going to use a very, very controversial word, are ignorant. People who don't want to do their homework. People who don't want to have any knowledge of things. They just want to see somebody say something bad about somebody else and say, oh, that's why I'm going to vote for that person. Uh, additionally, there are people in this room who you will vote Democrat or Republican, oops, I said the words, um, simply because of party. Christians, can I talk to you? What a shame that you would vote for something and have no idea why it's actually close to the heart of our God. What a shame that you would just vote for it because you've always been registered that way. What a, what a shame that you would approach things in our culture not from a biblical lens, but just from a conservative lens. We don't want that to be the story of our church. We don't want that to be the story of a church after God's own heart. Um, we need clarity. We need courage. The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 3.15 says, This is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. If we are to be salt and light in our communities, we need to be prepared to give a defense for what we believe. We need to be prepared to discuss government and politics from a calm sober-minded, loving, biblical perspective so that our faith in Jesus can be integrated into every arena of our lives, including the great privilege that each of us have to influence public life in our country. There are a lot of people in this world who do not have that right and that privilege. This is an issue of stewardship. It was Charles Finney, a revivalist preacher, who played a major role in the Second Great Awakening in our country. He was a man known for promoting social reforms like the abolition of slavery and the equal education of women and African Americans, who said these piercing words, if there is a decay of conscience, the pulpit is responsible for it. If the public press lacks moral discrimination, the pulpit is responsible for it. If the church is degenerate and worldly, the pulpit is responsible for it. If the world loses its interest in religion, the pulpit is responsible for it. If Satan rules in our halls of legislation, the pulpit is responsible for it. If our politics be some, become so corrupt that the very foundation of our government is ready to fall away, the pulpit is responsible for it. How can I take that lightly? Some of you are regular attenders. This is not a church of 2,000 people. Relax. You know me. You know Roy. Uh, we have relationship with you. We, we, we love you. And unless you come and notify us after this otherwise, we're assuming that you love us. Um, it's not our intent in this to alienate or divide. It is our intent to be faithful. Your pastors can't make decisions as God's under-shepherds, no matter what community we are a part of or who attends this church through the filter of what do people like and not like? Um, what will ensure that no one disagrees? That would be irresponsible. The fact is we're not going to agree perfectly. We will not have perfect uniformity. It's silly to think that if we all stopped talking about politics and stopped caring about politics, all of a sudden we would all be unified and have perfect unity in everything. That's not the way it works. Uh, disunity in a church and, and disagreement in a church don't I'll say it like this. Um, the existence of disagreement among us does not happen because of politics. It happens because of our heart. So let's have faith that the Spirit of God can bind our hearts together in a supernatural way in unity this morning. In fact, for every person here, the church should be the best place to talk about really difficult things. And because this will not be a full scope, in-depth manifesto, covering every issue at hand. Can I just repeat that? This will not be a full scope manifesto that covers every issue at hand. We invite you to join us for a Q&A 
right after this, 15 minutes after this morning's gathering ends, uh, right here in the first five rows of the gym, because we care that this is not just a monologue, but it gives way to a dialogue. Uh, we want you to learn. We want to learn. Uh, we don't want to close you off to conversation that's important to us on a topic that is as charged as this. So with all that said, let's open our Bibles. Romans chapter 13. We're going to explore God's heart for government. I'm doing something for the first time this morning. I'm using my phone. I'm so sorry. Uh, I cannot find my Bible at home this morning. I've looked everywhere. I think it's probably underneath children's things somewhere in a room. Um, so here's what Romans chapter 13 says, starting in verse 1. Let every soul be in subjection to the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. And the powers that be are ordained of God. Therefore, he that resisteth the power, that's, this is not, y'all already know, Resist, resisteth it. Um, verse 2, so anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and they will be punished. So let me just stop right here. Romans chapter 13, who's it written by? The Apostle Paul. Um, Paul is writing this as he is under Roman rule. And he is saying that government is established by God. He's saying that God is sovereign over institutions and governments. That's really weird to hear that. Um, but Daniel chapter 2, praise the name of God forever and ever, for he has all wisdom and power. He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and he sets up other kings. Scripture is not shy to tell us that we ought to intercede and pray for those who are in leadership. Scripture is not shy to tell us that government exists to do something. God intends as an ideal government to accomplish something, and we find it here in Romans chapter 13. If you look at verse 3, for the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right, but in those who are doing wrong. Would you like to live without fear of the authorities? Do what is right, and they will honor you. Verse 4, the authorities are God's servants, sent for your good. But if you are doing wrong, of course you should be afraid, for they have the power to punish you. They are God's servants, sent for the very purpose of punishing those who do what is wrong. So Christianity is, yes, of course, about good citizenship. It's about being subject and obedient to the powers that be. Um, there's a whole other sermon and conversation that we could have about that. But what I want us to see here is quite simply, government is intended to punish the evildoer and to promote and reward good. This is the ideal of godly government. And here enters politics, okay? Politics uh, should not be intimidating, in fact, many of us probably wouldn't even know how to describe politics. It can be defined in simple terms this way, the process of governing the moral affairs of a society. Uh, author and apologist Natasha Crane, um, she frames why we should care about politics in a way that I find very convincing. Uh, not long ago during a hearing, a public official chose to read from a Bible commentary about what the Word of God says on the subject of gender identity, which is something I'll be addressing here momentarily. At the end of his reading, another representative said, Sir, what any religious tradition ascribes as God's will is no concern of this Congress. It's quite revealing. Uh, what it reveals to us is that some would say, hey, we live in a secular society. Politics should be neutral. I want to contend this morning to you, number one, you have the right politically to advocate for your Christian worldview in the public square. Here's why. This is paramount to our conversation this morning. Even if we wanted to have a neutral public square, such a thing is actually not even possible. There is no such thing as a neutral government or society. Why? Everyone has different world views. Now, a worldview starts to tackle basic existential questions like, why are we here? Who is God? Are we created? Where did we come from? 
Where are we going? What is our view of the world? Christians have a very unique worldview. And a lot of people in our culture, everybody, no, nobody does not have a worldview. Everyone walks with a worldview, whether they would like to claim that or not. And some of the questions that define a person's worldview, threefold. Number one is authority. The question with authority is, who has the right to tell me what to do? Number two is knowledge. Who knows what is best for me to do? And number three is trustworthiness. Who loves me and wants what is best for me? See, what you believe about God and the nature of reality will determine what you think about right and wrong and good and bad. And so all value judgments are based off a person's worldview. And the process of governing the moral affairs of a society is inherently connected to that. Church, often it's not politics that are divided. It is worldviews. And you have the right politically to advocate for your Christian worldview in the public square. But the second reason that we should care about politics it almost hits even more. You have the responsibility spiritually to contend for the good of your neighbor. Our political engagement should promote human flourishing. It should represent God's throne, which we see in Psalm 89, 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Unfailing love and truth walk before you as attendants. Author and scholar Wayne Grudem, uh, he lists some of what Christians in past eras have done through uh, contending for things in the political process. Outlawing infanticide, ending gladiator battles, instituting humane prison reforms, stopping human sacrifice, outlawing pedophilia and polygamy, granting property rights and protections to women, advancing education for all children in Europe, and much more. Church, I just want us to consider the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So don't miss this. Out of love for others, out of our desire to want God's best for them, sometimes it warrants political involvement. And in our current political climate, there are a couple moral issues that we believe fit that category. One of which is the modern movement of transgenderism. So I want to pray before we go to the Word of God here. And I am asking, please, that you would bear with me. Um, I want you to pray with me. I don't want you to listen to me praying right now. I'm asking you to pray with me, to pray in faith with me in this moment. Can we do that together? God, this is an emotionally charged topic. This is a topic that is charged with opinion. I am simply asking, would we see your heart? God, we recognize your presence is in this room with us, within us right now. You, holy Yahweh, are here now. Jesus, you are here. Spirit of God, you're here. God, I acknowledge your presence and I acknowledge the people in this room that this issue hits close to home. Whether we have people in our midst this morning who are confused with their identity, who are fighting internal battles that not many or no one know of, whether we have people in this room who have loved ones who are right in the thick of that, God, we are praying for wisdom, we are praying for discernment, and we are praying for a balance of two things this morning that only you can do. Jesus, you are full of grace and truth. God, give us conviction and give us compassion. We look most like you when we operate that way. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. God is eternally existent, He never began. Everything that we know in this world, everything that has been created and sustained up to our very breathing in this room right now comes from a God who predated all of us. He is a God who defines 
all things. He is a God who designs all things. He is a God who loves his creation. In Genesis 1.27, we read, So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. One of the questions that we immediately have to ask in this conversation is whether the creator owns the right to speak about his creation more than the creation itself does. The one who made the blueprint, the one who has the divine design. Um, I find it so interesting that when you read Genesis chapter 1, we're learning about all of these things that, that God created night and day. Um, land and sea, birds in the air, fish that swim, Um, sun, moon, stars. There is a dualism and a complementarity that is evident in natural creation. And um, God doesn't make any comments about any of the animals that he creates, but when he gets to human beings, there is something so intimate to his heart that he goes the extra mile to say, I created them in my image, They are the crown of my creation in my image. They reflect and represent me in unique ways. I'm stamped on them in a way that nothing else in creation is. And and church, we just need this one verse. He created them male and female. This is not a a political cry I'm making. This is a a, um, believing in the good heart of a good creator who created people clearly in his word in such a way that in Genesis 1.31, he takes a look at what he creates and he says, it is very good. Not just good, very good. And not just very good, period. Very good, exclamation point. That's God speaking. It's very good. I take great pride in what I've created and made. Uh, We don't, make our own identity, we receive it. Everybody. God did not split our souls and our bodies, but knit us together as whole people. Um, He doesn't mash together a, 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 a female body with a male mind. As, as cruel as that would be. I myself have three children. Um, there is beauty and wonder and pride I feel when I look at them and declare that they are my girls. Femaleness is written into their biology from chromosomes to hormones to anatomy, including their sex organs and their brains and their gender expression. Being a sister, being a daughter, maybe one day being a mom. One day being a a wife, um, it arises from their physical bodies. It is God's good and perfect intent. It's so so beautiful. The curse of sin in our world means that we live in a Genesis 3 world right now. We live in a world where everything has fallen underneath the curse of our rebellion against God. Everything fell underneath the curse of sin that Adam and Eve brought into the world. There is brokenness. There are things that have been made unright that we take great hope in Christians that Jesus has already begun to write in his first coming and that he will write completely in his second coming. One of the things that made me grieve, if you can't tell as I'm speaking, fighting back a little bit of emotion is um, there seems to be a wave of confusion in our culture today and it's um, it's so damaging God wants us to have a purpose he wants us to have a holy identity he wants us to have a destiny and we have an enemy who lives to sow confusion and shame and embarrassment and depression and anxiety and hopelessness and questions and fear in all of us in our own unique ways. Um, Ephesians 4 tells us that apart from God, we are hopelessly confused and our minds are full of darkness. 
Uh, Jeremiah 17 talks about the human heart. It says it's the most deceitful of all things. It's desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? And church, this has caused so much brokenness that we forget who we are. We don't know who we are. And we have an enemy who sows shame. Um, He brings physiological and psychological distress and a breakdown of our God-given identity that God intended to be very good. Today, just to bring you into this conversation a little bit in case you're like, it's not that big of a deal. Today, uh, Facebook offers over 50 genders options to its members. And if you don't identify with the pre-populated list, you are able to add your own and you can add up to 10 gender terms to define yourself. There are gender-affirming care clinics that are multiplying rapidly and popping up across our country, backed by an unprecedented push in our culture to agree with the idea that one's gender, defined as their feelings of being male or female, when that conflicts with their biology, the feelings are determinative. Um, That sex and gender can be unrelated categories, and I just, again, want to say out loud, the Bible, Scripture knows of no such thing. Um, This is driven by a condition that is called gender dysphoria. And here's its definition. It's a feeling of mismatch between someone's biological sex and the gender they feel themselves to be. Paul McHugh serves as the University Distinguished Professor of Psychiatry at John Hopkins Medical School. He was the former psychiatrist-in-chief at John Hopkins Hospital, and here's his assessment of the transgender movement. Gender dysphoria, the official psychiatric term for feeling oneself to be of the opposite sex, belongs in the family of similarly disordered assumptions about the body such as anorexia nervosa and body dysmorphic disorder. Its treatment should not be directed at the body as with surgery and hormones any more than one treats obesity-fearing anorexic patients with liposuction. The treatment should strive to correct the false problematic nature of the assumption and to resolve the physiological conflicts provoking it, psychosocial, excuse me, conflicts provoking it. Studies are replete with uh, evidence that the vast majority of children experiencing legitimate diagnosable gender dysphoria, and it is a thing, church, they grow out of it. Uh, Most children who meet criteria for gender dysphoria do not continue to meet criteria as they grow up and enter adolescence. Not to mention those kids who make temporary gender and sexuality decisions or proclamations based on a host of reasons some of which could be to be celebrated and to have a sense of belonging in a community. Um, Rapid onset gender dysphoria is happening in which friendship groups begin to experience similar gender questions at the same time, and it's on an unprecedented rise in our culture now. Uh, Research shows that the professional trend in treatment encourages exploration of non-birth sex expression, often meaning an affirming therapy session and then puberty blockers, and then hormonal treatment, and then surgery. Can I just be candid? And some of you are like, you're asking for permission for that now? (laughs) Invasive and sometimes irreversible chemical and medical and surgical processes will not lead people to flourishing and happiness and peace and blessing. Um, Author Tony Ranke states it in sobering terms. He says that, Chromosomes cannot be re-engineered, removed, or scrubbed from the software of our bodies. It may be possible for a trans woman to pass for a woman on the street at the visual level, but it is not possible for a man to morph himself into a biological woman with all the experiences and functions of natural femaleness. The biological narrative doesn't exist. While medical advances make it possible to suppress or change some of the outward appearances of our bodies... And to change our patterns of speech and dress, it is not possible, this is painful, to raise our bodies to the ground and rebuild them without shortcutting all the essential formative experiences that make the biological sex expression and gender authentic. A trans woman can grow his hair long and wear high heels and pump estrogen into his body, and a trans man can cut her hair short and force testosterone into her body. All of this is an act of pushing against the body's internal software Unable to decode ourselves from the genetics of our physical becoming, we are left to rearrange anatomical aesthetics 
and coerce ourselves in a direction that runs contrary to nature. I read all of that because City Light Bennington, this is heartbreaking. This is heartbreaking. Church, if our response to a transgender movement is anger and, um, and disgust uh, more than it is grief, more than it is mourning for image bearers of God that are dealing with this, we need to repent. Um, this is cause for prayer. This is a cry for help. And, and so why am I talking about that on a morning where we're talking about government and politics? Well, what if Christians sincerely believe that this is a moral issue, that it actually is harmful and destructive? What if we feel like this is an issue that is unjust? 1 Corinthians 13.6 is something that I, I hold so tightly to. Love does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. See, I, I believe firmly that we can absolutely love transgender people. We can love people experiencing gender dysphoria. We should love them. I believe we can point them to Jesus I believe there is hope for people who are in the midst of that. I, I believe that the church should be a place where people are received and cared for and listened to and there is compassion and we see and we feel, like Cliff said last week, a churning in our stomach for what someone is enduring. These are real people. This is not just an issue up there and out there. This is real people. And yet, church, and yet, I believe simultaneously that we can disagree with the ways this ideology is coming to bear on public life and all of the efforts to formally embed it in our policies. Policies will begin to require the active suppression of the view that men and women are intrinsically different and complementary, that transgenderism is a right to be protected, and that active obedience on the parts of children in the classroom and educators in the classroom and parents is going to be the government's expectation. In, in one way or another. 21 states, okay? And again, I'm not trying to declare, hey, the sky is falling, all right? I'm, I promise, I'm not. But, but I really do feel like there are a lot of people right now, the average everyday Joe is not aware of these things, is not thinking about these things, probably because the byproduct of how disgusting politics are. Just we, and we totally check ourselves out from them uh, because we don't want to be a part of it. 21 states already have policies requiring teachers to assign new names and pronouns to trans-identifying students without parental notice or consent. States like New York have had instances of fining citizens who fail to use the preferred pronoun of transgender citizens. Some of you, maybe in your workplace, have had to deal with really painful conflict between your conscience and your religious liberty and somebody that's demanding that you call them something that you do not believe that they are and that you believe to be harmful to them. Just last year in our own state, let me just bring this like close to home, okay? Just last year in our own state, a new health education standard was proposed. It was shot down, but it shows us what kind of propositions or proposals, I should say, are out there. In Nebraska Department of Education, this is what its kindergartners would be taught about cohabiting and same-gender families. First graders would be taught to define gender identity and gender role stereotypes. Fourth graders would be taught that sex is assigned at birth and gender is fluid. Fifth graders would be taught that gender expression and identity exists along a spectrum. Sixth graders would be taught about identifying with multiple sexual identities, including bisexual, lesbian, gay, queer, two-spirit, asexual, and pansexual. This carries the potential to manipulate and mislead children, placing them in environments where they are being taught incoherent sexual and gender ideas that they have not the emotional nor psychological ability to wrestle with. This is close to the heart of God because it's dangerous for the fragile hearts and minds of those who are closest to his kingdom, kids. Children are not autonomous agents all on their own with the maturity to make decisions concerning their sexuality and gender. Most, most children, even in our church, most children's personalities do not perfectly conform to the stereotypical societal expectations or norms that their sex or gender points to. And guess what? That's okay. 
they should never be led to fear that their unique expression or preferences or likes indicate a need to change their identity or their bodies. Author and ethicist Andrew Walker writes, legislatures need to pass laws that explicitly state that parents and legal guardians, think about that word, guardians. You ever stopped and thought, guardians? Rather than the child's opinion or a healthcare provider's opinion, parents and legal guardians should retain the authority over the child's health directives. None of this is to suggest that the state has no compelling interest to ensure a child's medical safety in other legitimate areas of medicine, but that in the case of transgender medicine, the controversial nature of this medical field deserves heightened scrutiny. I believe this undermines parental rights. It also undermines religious conscience. What about parents and educators who have a religious objection to teaching transgender ideology they believe to be harmful? Church, um, a lot of people are like, well, I'll just pull my kids out of public school and we'll go to whatever they are in the city, the co-ops or the, the private schools. It don't matter if you pull your kids out of school. 86% of the American public is in public schools. 86% of kids. And that number, if it goes down, is going to go down very, very, very slowly. This is a matter of things that are eventually going to hit close to home here. And I believe as a church called to be salt and light in our community, we should take notice of this. And I believe we have the right to represent our Christian worldview in the public square. I believe we have the right spiritually, the responsibility spiritually, to contend for the good of our neighbor. And so I want to close with this before I hand it off to Roy for sermon number two. People who face this battle... Stretch, stretch, y'all, come on. Stretch your arms, okay? We knew we were coming in to put in work this morning. I want to close with this. This is, the, this is compassion. People who face this battle are not monsters, perverts, or freaks. Children in our schools who face this battle are not monsters, perverts, or freaks. Kids at Bennington High School right now who face this battle are not monsters, perverts, and freaks. Gender issues in our culture represent real people, real neighbors, real classmates, real co-workers. Gender identity, confusion, gender dysphoria, it's real. The distress, the mental pain, the questioning, the fear, the unease are real. As God's people, we're in sin and we need to repent. If someone among us experiencing this is met with suspicion, uh, distance, shaming, mocking, marginalization, prejudice, or ignorance on our part. We will be a church that walks with people. God, let it be. Um, we will be a church that understands that there's good news in Jesus. Here's the thing about Jesus. This is why we have a Christian worldview, because our worldview, yes, uh, it, it informs how we operate in the public square, but our worldview is one of hope for all people. God loves his creation. God loves people. He wants them to come into a saving relationship with him. And one of the things that he does when that happens is he renews their identity. He makes a person a new creation in Christ. And, and it's not that someone necessarily goes from having gender dysphoria to not anymore. It is that someone begins to have a holy sexuality, a holy Christ-like sense of identity. I, I want to just, I want to say this. Our sexuality, our bodies, in a myriad of ways, they groan under the effects of sin. Everyone in here in this room knows this, that we need hope. Be it body image depression, cancer, anorexia, anxiety, sex addiction, dementia, autoimmune disorders, psychological disorders, gender dysphoria, so much more. Entire books are listed of the conditions and disorders that we have. And here's what Romans 8, 22 and 23 says. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. I want our declaration as a church to be taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man or woman who takes refuge in him. Amen. Amen. Amen.
Good morning, church. Both political parties share commendable things that they fight against on both the left and the right. They fight against human trafficking and alleviate human poverty. Commendable things. But they radically are different in another regard other than transgender dysphoria, and that would be the issue of life. The issue of life. The first words of the Bible reveal that God is the creator of life. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Later in chapter 1, God creates humans. Genesis 1 again. So God created humans in his own image, which was alluded to earlier. Later on it says, then God looked over all he had made and saw that it was very good, which was alluded to earlier. Two notable things in the creation event. One, that each person is a image bearer of God. Number two, that when we were created within the creation story, it was called very good. That each human life that was started was declared by our creator very good. In the first two chapters of the Bible, God is bragging on the creation of life. In the chapter three, sin enters creation and all heck breaks loose because of the disobedience of your great, 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 great grandma Eve and great, great grandpa Adam. Not mine, I can't, no. I'm, I fall, I'm his family too, I'm his family too. But in chapter four, uniquely, Cain murders his brother Abel. And we see the first murder, the first taking of life. That same life that was described two, two chapters earlier as very good. That same life that was described two, two chapters earlier as an image bearer of God. Cain murders his brother Abel. And check it out with me. The repercussion is that God banishes him from his presence in the land. And it's in this repercussion, church, that we can look and see that God is making a statement. We learn first that God is for the preservation of life. God is for the preservation of life. But wait with me, in case we miss this as Bible readers, God is going to go back and double down on how much he is a champion for preserving life. Cain the murderer, right? who killed his brother Abel, is going to come back to God and say, God, this repercussion of yours, I can't live without your presence. And by the way, people are going to come for me. They're going to want revenge. They're going to kill me. And God's response as a champion for preservation of life. Cain, complaining, my punishment's too great for me to bear. You've banished me from the land and from your presence. You have made me a homeless wanderer. Anyone who finds me will kill me. The Lord God replied, no, I will give a sevenfold punishment for anyone who kills you. Church, don't miss this. God is so for preserving life that he marks the murderer Cain with protection after the first taking of life. In other words, God values the preservation of life so much that the murderer Cain does not automatically lose his right to life. That's how much God champions the preservation of life. Church, it's only four chapters into the Bible. The Bible in which speaks the word of God to us. And it is painstakingly clear that we learn that God's not just creator, but preserver and sustainer of life. In the very next book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 20, God reveals Moses' Ten Commandments. He, he reveals his Ten Commandments to Moses. And they're a revelation of what God cares about most. Moral ethical issues, things that are close to God's vest. And in it we read, you must not murder. Church, it is early on in the Bible, and God is revealing to us his value for the preservation of life after he's created it. And it is with this ethic that we transition into the topic of abortion. Before I continue, I understand the weightiness of the subject. I understand the statistics and I would imagine that there have been women here who have aborted babies. There are women who will watch this in the future who have experienced the painstaking experience of abortion. And I want to express this as a church and for anyone who's experienced that. This church will always be a place for you. Always be a place for you. Jesus came to reach a people with messy and broken past. Can the church say amen? amen? We're all guilty of transgression. Creator, 
So our paths are full of brokenness and varying degrees. If you knew me before Jesus, and if you knew some of the things that I've struggled with in my thought life since we've started this church, you would think less of me. And you'd be right to do so, but by God's grace, you would think more highly of Jesus. You would think more highly. It is by God's grace in his alone that I am what I am. And I hope that sentiment and truth carries over to the attitude of this church. Let's remember it was all of our sin that warranted the death of God the Son. All of ours. So as we talk about preservation of life, we come to this topic with humility, with grace, with truth, as former sinners who used to be friends with the enemy, but has now been changed by the transformative life of Jesus. Church, I've showed us the ethic of preserving life. Now I want, us to show, and I want to show us how God sees the unborn as a life. Here are a few verses. We're going to see in these few verses that the writers actually use baby and unborn as interchangeable, as if they're one and the same thing. Job 3. Job is lamenting the pain of what God's taking away from his life. At last, Job spoke, and he cursed the day of his birth. He said, let the day of my birth be erased, and, night, and the night I was conceived as well. Jeremiah 1 reads, the Lord gave me this message. I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as a prophet to the nations. We could go through way more proof verses of how God does see the unborn as life, but I'm going to park this morning. Psalm 139, Psalm 139. The writer of the Psalms, as you read, it's a bunch of prayer journals. People are thanking God for what God has done for them, of which they're aware of. But unique to this Psalm, Psalmist is writing about what God has done while he was in the womb, before he even was aware of his creator. The Psalmist traces life back to the womb. Look with me, Psalm 139. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body. And you knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion. And as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Key in on this church. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. There are seven references to God developing life from conception within the womb. Three references to the location of within the womb. And interestingly enough, in the NLT translation, which God's anointed, my favorite also, just happens to be. It's reference to utter seclusion. Utter seclusion. Side note, this speaks to the heart of God for the unborn. That in utter seclusion, in the most vulnerable places where there is life, God is crafting, sustaining, and preserving. But I want us to look at verse 16 specifically. Verse 16 specifically. Psalm 139. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. So I'm going to work through this slowly. The psalmist writes, you saw me before I was born. Hopefully that's still behind me. Then he continues the same train of thought of being born and says, every day of my life was recorded in your book, which is supposed to chronicle our days. The psalmist is informing us that the days that God counts as our life actually begin in the womb at conception. If you take away the words after life in the verse, it may help you out. It helped me. And it would say this, you saw me before I was born every day of my life. And notice that the reference is to a book and that God has a book on each one of us. I don't know if the psalmist meant this literally or figuratively, but my imagination was stirred this week. From this text, I imagine the psalmist envisioned that God had a library of each and every person that would be born, has been born, was born. Before he created the universe, he wrote these biographies detailing all of our life's happenings. I envision being in that library and opening up to my two-week-old Hosea's book. And I end up reading on a future time. It has his name on the front, Hosea, Havea Helu, a.k.a. Triple H, WWE wrestler. <laughs> Born January 2022. And it reads, delivered October 23rd. 
2022, 40 weeks later. And the section below is a journal from God. First, he's, he's writing this out as a journal like we would. Actually, the whole book is actually from his perspective, and it reads this of Hosea in our lives. It's been a fun 40 weeks. I was crafting Hosea. I made him resemble his mama's beauty. Because I have a sense of humor, I'm going to make him look almost identical to his brothers and sister so that that would become that family. <laughs> the family that people think are weird because they all look the same age and look alike. And I'll tell you what, this boy covers up his face with crazy. Then I imagine eventually reading to heading that says life after delivery in which it will chronicle life for Hosea from God's perspective. April 10th of a 20-something future date, Hosea gave his life to me. We celebrated with all the saints and angels in heaven. January 6th, Hosea met his bride. He doesn't know it yet, but he's going to be the type of dude who marries my best for him. February 18th, Hosea's struggling. I put him to the test to see if he's trustworthy. I've got some wonderful works for him to work out on my behalf. March 12th, Hosea has endured the testing, and he trusts me like never before. He's that type of image bearer, son of mine, who I trust. July 6th, I've been given Hosea, I have given Hosea the spiritual gifts necessary to minister, for me to minister to people. And on another date, Hosea's earthly race is finished. He finished faithful to the end. I'm so looking forward to seeing my son. Can't wait to see his face and his reaction when he sees me face to face from God's perspective. Church, what a beautiful vision the psalmist gives us that God sees the unborn as a life and writes about it in his books. The sad reality is that abortion is cutting short too many books. To be approximate, since Roe v. Wade, there have been over 75 million books that have been cut short in the womb that do not include life after delivery. 75 books that I imagine read something like this. <clears throat> the cover reads, Diane, you open it up, and it says, born or conceived March 6th, and the journal reads like this. It's the first two weeks from God's perspective, of course. I formed the new clump of cells that are Diane. I'm excited to work. It's week four. I've heard, I've made the heart of Diane. She's so small, size of a poppy seed. It's week six. I'm forming her ears, mouth, nose to resemble her mama's. What a beautiful baby. Today I heard her heartbeat for the first time. It's week seven. And Diane's mamas find out that she's carrying a baby. It's week 11. Diane is hiccuping and stretching a ton inside mama. It's week 12. I'm concerned for Diane's mama. I'm concerned for Diane's mama and baby. She's considering aborting Diane. Week 13, full trimester. Diane's veins and organs are formed. Check. Her ovaries contain more than two million eggs. Check. Oh, and I finished the distinguishing thing about her. The thing that makes her unique above any other thing I've ever made. Any other baby, her fingerprint. Check. But I'm still concerned for mama and baby. Week 14. Still concerned for baby and mama, but I'm going to continue to work. Week 15. No. No. Of course, from God's perspective. Why did we choose this moral issue to teach on? It's because it has everything to do with life and death. Because it has everything to do with life and death. To vote for a party candidate that supports pro-choice is to side in principle, in principle, with the murdering of life. And the unborn is the most innocent, vulnerable of any people group that have ever existed. They are the most vulnerable people group of any people that have ever existed. And you may think, well, my vote doesn't matter. It does, beloved church of God, sons and daughters of the most high of your creator. It does, and it counts on two fronts. One, it matters in the eyes of your savior. 
In principle, it matters. The God who gave you life and a spiritual rebirth, a vote for a party candidate that sides with pro-choice is just purely a disconnect between your heart and the heart of God and what he treasures so closely in the preservation of life and the vulnerable of most vulnerables. Proverbs 6, uh, 6 verse 16 reads this way. There are six things the Lord hates. No, seven he detests. Hates and detests. Here's the list. Haughty eyes, lying tongue, hands that kill the innocent. God, the lover of our souls, has a distaste for murder, but especially for the innocent and those who were murdered that vulnerable. And if you're thinking, does this church care about any other life? Yes. We care about seniors. We're involved in Ridgewood Living Center, Senior Living Center up north in Bennington. Do they care about the homeless and those who are really going through a hot mess in life right now? Yes. A lot of people on staff actually at Open Door Mission are in this church, and people will be visiting there soon. Do people care about moms? Yes. We're involved in a sure women's center, so we care more than just the unborn, but uniquely the unborn are the most vulnerable people group ever and will be forever. Number two, the second reason you should, your vote matters is it actually can preserve life. We're living in unprecedented times. We are living in a society post Roe v. Wade. Not many Christians who have been born again for 40 years actually would have imagined to be living in such a time as this. There will be legislature crafted in the new year in which we will be voted, which we can vote on in a future time. And it will give this state the opportunity to vote to either defend or not defend the unborn church. If there was ever a time to stand up for the unborn, it's now. Acts 17 reads, from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history, which for you is now, and the boundaries of their land, which for you is Omaha Metro. It's not an accident that we live in this area, in this state, and at this time. Post Roe v. Wade. Could it be that one of the reasons that God so selected you, church, was, was for such a moment as this? Let's not let the moment pass. Your vote is just one of the more simple ways to express worship to him. If you're not politically savvy and you're overwhelmed, like where do I go from here? You do not have to be. NebraskaVoterGuide.com is what I recommend, what I will vote off of, and what Glenn and others will vote off of as well. NebraskaVoterGuide.com. You put in your address, and from there, it gives you anyone, everyone, all the candidates, and you can go in and start selecting. It has every candidate for every office, side by side, and then columns for each issue. And on the voter guide, NebraskaVoterGuide.com, you'll see that it will have one on their stance on life and another when it comes to gender dysphoria or curriculum being taught within the school district, either they're for it or they're not. And the people behind that research, which is as, as simple as going on that website, plugging it in and having everything given to you right then and there outside of your local school board nominations. The group behind that is NFA, Nebraska Family Alliance. They're a nonprofit. I've got one person who's a supporter. <laughs> They're a nonprofit Christian ministry, and they are friends of ours. Their mission is to advance family, freedom, and life. And they do it by influencing policy, mobilizing prayer, which is huge and distinct, in their values, and empowering people. Their vision is this, to ensure Nebraska is a place where God is honored, marriages and families thrive, life is cherished, parental rights are protected, and religious liberties flourishes. They're missionaries to the state capitol. And they're here today in attendance. Karen and Nate, would you mind standing up? They're here in the front row. Would you mind turning towards the congregation? Feel free to, these are the missionaries. <clears throat> so Karen is the executive director of NFA. 
Nate is the policy director. Our staff visited NFA last month and were moved by a few things that these two said, and these two are the leadership of their organization. Here are a few four things. We're not in the business of throwing people under the bus. We're not in the business of telling people the sky is falling every day. We will never lose our witness and will always want the opportunity to lead legislators and public officials to life in Jesus. We build relationships across the aisle so, so much so that we consider it winsome and humble. I just want to say you two mimic the prayer life of Jesus, the humility of Jesus, and his care and compassion for people like Jesus. I want to say thank you for coming, for honoring us with your presence. And I want to say thank you, Karen, in a unique way, because a couple days after Roe v. Wade was shot down at the Supreme Court, we called her and asked, what do we do now? And she had marching orders. She had the whole nation calling her, and she picked up our phone call. And we want to say thank you for that. I thank you also for looking over our message to see if this was filled with grace and followed with truth. Nate, I want to thank you for all the hours you put in to editing and directing legislature, all of the policies that you edit, the things that people don't see. You have smarts to do most anything you want. You could probably go and try to run for office, but you choose to be a watchman on the wall with NFA. Know that the Father sees it and he's honoring it right now. So thank you. Church, I just wanted to say, these are just friends of ours who inform us on a leadership level. And after, we're going to have a Q&A with NFA and us pastors, again, in these first five rows right here. And we're get, they've dedicated their life to what's happening in government, especially on a state level. Um, also, Glenn and I will have information on Elkhorn and Bennington school districts, in particular on these two issues, on who to vote for. And church, to finish our time together, I just want to U-turn to talk about something very important, and I want to address those who have aborted babies, and that's a part of your past. That's a part of your past. Not right now. It's a part of your past. Your abortion does not define you. I'm guessing there are women in this room who've had an abortion as well as you, but they're walking in something they never would have imagined, a, a freedom they never would have imagined when they had their abortion. And I imagine they would say something like this. They would tell you that your book of life does not have to be all about the effects of your abortion, the shame, the guilt, or the condemnation. I'm guessing that these women in here whose books are similar to yours before they experienced the love of Jesus would point you towards the forgiving and restoration and love of Jesus that they would share with you that their life book from God's perspective looked a little something like this. Making up a name here. Tiffany, December 7th, 1986. Tiffany, from God's perspective, is lost without me since she went through with the abortion. She's continuing to spiral. Her depression is continuing to sink. I'm doing my best to keep her heart soft towards me. Two years later, Tiffany is running everywhere for, the re for rest for her soul. If only she would turn to me. One year later, Tiffany is at the end of her rope. It's life or death now. I'm praying for her. We're on our seats in heaven in anticipation. One month later, heaven is in pandemonium right now. My beloved Tiffany surrendered her life to me. I've inherited another daughter. She's asked me to forgive her of her sins, and I've given her the blessing of my spirit. She's now full of peace that transcends all understanding. Now she's full of a new hope. She's experienced what she's been looking for all her life, love. December of the next year, Tiffany's working through the process of grieving the loss of her abortion. And one year after that, Tiffany is no longer experiencing shame from the abortion she has fully experienced my forgiveness to the point of freedom. The future condemning darts that may come will have no power on her. If you are born again and are still experiencing shame, guilt, and condemnation, that's not sourced from your father, sister in Christ. That's sourced from the enemy. And these few promises hold close to 
God will no longer remember your sin, Micah 7. God has washed you as white as snow, Isaiah 1. God has removed your sins as far as you as the east is from the west, Psalm 103. Stop punishing yourself for what God took the punishment for. You no longer have to do that, sister in Christ. That wasn't you. That wasn't you in Christ. That's not you anymore. And if you haven't given your life to Jesus, that is the first step in restoration to be redeemed and reconciled back to the lover of your soul, whoever that may be. And you'll experience those three restorative promises in God. Church, what type of church are we going to be moving forward from this date? Our prayer is that this attempt in discipling y'all this morning will not make us an all-Christian congregation. Our prayer is that we have given you the heart of God for the image bearers who have aborted babies, for the image bearers who are struggling with gender dysphoria, and it would cause us to not push away from the table, but pursue them, to pursue them, to pray in the power of the Holy Ghost for their good to invite them onto, into our homes, to sit across the table, and eventually to point them to the hope in Christ. Amen? Amen? We are a church of both and. We speak into culture and we pursue the lost, both with grace and truth, just as Jesus did. Let's pray. Jesus, you are good. We thank you for your truth. Spirit of God, would you bring change, more of a urgency for us to value the vote? Would you flip over any tables that we have up on our hearts that have not considered you and righteousness in our land? And God, would you continue to shape and form us into your image? Help us care for what you care for and what's closest to your heart. In Jesus' name, amen.